1: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. E. James West, author of Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr., Popular Black History in Post-War America. In this interview, you'll find out why Dr. Peril Bovi described Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr. as a major contribution to our understanding of what West aptly calls popular black history enjoy the interview y'all welcome to the podcast james how you doing man yeah i'm doing okay how you doing stay adam man happy to be here and you know it's monday well morning for me afternoon for you uh so you know just excited for this uh interview and uh shout out to marshall poe for bringing us together uh he he was the one who was like hey man james got a book out i think i think you should be the guy you know it's a little longer than he, what he probably expected, but hey, we're we're here regardless, man. And so, um, James, really happy to be here to talk about Ebony Magazine and Lorraine Bennett Jr., popular Black history and post-war America. So, tell us how you got to this project. How did how did you find Lorraine Bennett, or how did he find you? Sure. Um,
0: so, I think my entry point was was Ebony Magazine, um, who. You know, most listeners probably have some idea of Ebony Magazine, a popular black consumer magazine. Um, We can talk a bit more about its history. Um, But when I started my undergraduate, which was 2008 in the UK, um, that was around the time that Johnson Publishing, which is the company that that published Ebony, um, entered an agreement with Google to digitize a lot of its back catalog. So a lot of Ebony suddenly became very available. Um, through Google Books so it was something I first encountered as, as an undergraduate I found it quite useful um, and a quite interesting window into thinking about certain periods of African-American history post 1945 and then it was something that I kind of came back to at a doctoral level um, and um, started from just thinking about Ebony as a really interesting source really a kind of archive of 20th century black history. Uh, And then the more I looked at it, the more I was drawn to a lot of the historical content, which I found very interesting. And then, you know, when you look at that content, um, Lorraine Bennett Jr. is the editor who is more often than not writing that material. So that was how I kind of became familiar with Bennett.
1: And so with the actual project that you have with this amazing book that y'all if if you've heard any of the kerfuffles about the 1619 project or you know you you've probably heard from Nicole Hannah-Jones that you know uh before the Mayflower uh was the book that really started her on her journey as as a youth um to to 2019 and beyond here in 2022 um I'm very interested to know about your work with this book and, you know, I'm just, I know you've listened to a couple of interviews. And so I love asking this question. What was the stiffest challenge that you encountered while researching, constructing and or writing this book?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I think, well, the, the primary concern or, or challenge or just something that was always at the forefront of my mind, I think, is I'm a, I'm a white British scholar. And so I'm coming at this really as a kind of, from a contextual or cultural um outside um you know ebony is a magazine that i think has a lot of sentiment and a lot of influence a lot of people feel a lot some kind of way about it and i didn't really have a lot of that context um so for me it was one of the most challenging things was just being mindful of that and just you know trying to develop that broader understanding of the ways in which Ebony function. Um because it has a lot of different roles as a publication. Um and yeah, for people who are not familiar with Ebony, it started in 1945, a guy called John H. Johnson Johnson published now in Chicago. And at the at the peak of its influence, um, when you account for things like pass on circulation and just general um market saturation, it's it's hitting about four in every 10 adult Black Americans. So it's got a pretty extraordinary reach. Um, and it's a very diverse publication. It's it's generally speaking, it's a quite moderate um, consumerist aspirational magazine. Um, but then within that, you have a lot of space for different perspectives. Um, and this was something that I was not really familiar with, um, certainly prior to starting my PhD. So, that was something that just gaining a more nuanced understanding of how Ebony worked, um, was a big part of that. And then in terms of Bennett specifically, um, you know, I've, I never met Bennett prior to his passing. Um, so he he passed away in, in 2018, I believe. Um, and he, he had health concerns towards the end of his life. And there was a couple of times where, uh, I, we were potentially going to meet and then um it didn't happen um so that's always just a challenge when there is a figure who's quite central to your project um and you never actually meet that person um and again that kind of just exacerbated or added to those initial challenges in terms of being you know a white scholar who's not based in the u.s um who doesn't have that kind of cultural engagement with Ebony. You know, Ebony is not a magazine that's in my household growing up. Ebony is not a magazine that my family read or my parents read, you know, all of that um, background, that, that milieu into which the the specific histories that I talk about in this book um, enter. So, yeah, th- those things were probably the, the biggest challenges um,
1: on, on a personal level. And so with that being said, how did you ultimately... Um, try to bridge um, that divide with your with your uh, research and methodological strategies
0: yeah I think um, a big part of it was relying on the expertise and and help of or the people of other institutions so particularly in Chicago I've been very fortunate to have um, support from the Black Metropolis uh, Research Consortium which is a group. is based at the University of Chicago. Um, if anyone's unfamiliar, I, I recommend, you know you give a Google. It's a, the BMRC is a really fantastic um, organization, and, and it's a basically a collective of different archives, libraries um, within Chicago. So that runs from quite big institutions like the Newbury Library or University of Chicago to um, more neighborhood institutions, um, like uh, Shorefront. Um, I believe it's called the Shorefront Legacy Project is 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 one um and then you know institutions like um Theaster gates arts bank on the south side so it, it, you know they cover a um a wide range of of perspectives but um most of the bmrc is is organized around you know raising awareness of engaging with archives and histories of black chicago um so i i've I got three uh bmrc fellowships um in in three different summers and that played a really massive role in Um, giving me access to certain collections, particularly at Chicago History Museum um, and then also at Chicago State University. Those were two of the the most important Chicago-based collections for me. Um, And then Emory University has some of Bennett's papers as well. Um, So Randall Burkett um, at Emory was a fantastic help. And then Pella McDaniels, who sadly passed away uh, not too long ago, um, but they were really instrumental in getting access to Bennett's papers at Emory. Um, and then, yeah, I can I talk a bit more about those archival collections specifically. I think the Chicago state stuff, uh, has a really, please cool. do please. Yeah. Do. Yeah. And and,
1: and, and, and thank you for bringing up, um, the late, uh, Pelham McDaniels, um, a good, a good friend and mentor, uh, Carl Sudler and the folks down, um, at Emory university are doing uh, great by his legacy. Um, they just had the uh, most recent uh, Pelham Daniels uh, conversation lecture, um, I think a couple weeks ago, um, and so you know just seeing that, and, and I didn't even know about him, um, honestly, until um, the the very end. And so uh, to to learn about him also being a part of your project and and this book, which um, got Pero Dagbovi to say, "E James West." book is the first major examination of Ebony as a forum for Black historical discourse and the magazine's longtime executive editor, Lerone Bennett Jr.'s multifaceted thought, work, and scholarship as a leading popular historian of the Black past and vital contributor to the post-war Black history movement, a well-researched and accessible study situated within the growing field of Black intellectual history. Ebony magazine and Lerone Bedding Jr. is a major contribution to our understanding of, a, of what West aptly calls black or uh, popular black history. Now that's a that's a big that's a big dude saying saying that about your book, my friend. So 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 please you know expand a little more about uh, some of the uh, institutions, culture, and otherwise, and also the people like Dak bovi who also played a major role in. Helping you get to the book public, the book publication and beyond.
0: Yeah, it was it was great to have have Perro blurbed the book and uh, yeah, I met him for the first time at Sala a couple of years ago and it was it wasn't it was nice to kind of see him. Oh yeah, in. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's I think he's at this point he's one of the guys at Asala who just kind of you know filters into like, exactly. everyone everyone knows Perro so he just kind of floats yep. around.
1: yeah um, definitely,
0: but yeah I think. Again, it goes back to, you know, as, as, you know, I'm a, I'm a white British guy. I don't have a lot of the context for this, so I'm reliant on, um, you know, the, the generosity and, and knowledge of other people um, within Chicago. Um, you know, I've been lucky to have support from, again, you know, someone who recently passed, Tim Black, um, who's, you know, just like this kind of griot, this fountain of knowledge of, of Black Chicago. And, um, yeah, also on an institutional level, um, you know, the institutions I already mentioned, Um, Aisha Heichel who's now at the Avery uh, Centre in Charleston and then Raquel flores Clemens, in particular who um, was at Chicago State they were you know so instrumental in in getting access to collection Um, because yeah Bennett, Chicago State came into a huge collection of Bennett's material in um, a kind of very unexpected way and I happened to be in Chicago at the moment that that happened Um, so it was yeah um, Aisha could talk to me about it and I kind of lost my mind because they just had all of this like unprocessed material um that I was able to to dive into um which was which was you know so important for the project um but yeah I think that it's probably we should probably talk a little bit more about that just because I think it's also please do yeah Yeah. the airwaves
1: are yours my friend
0: well it's it's kind of a, a bit of a crazy story but also it's just so instructive in thinking about you know whose history is valued and often, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of histories Mm -hmm. that get lost Mm -hmm. because for Bennett, I mean, Bennett is, you know, he, he is a, one of the leading public or popular historians of the 20th century. Um, You know, he's a really influential editor at at Ebony magazine. Um, Basically his entire office in the old Johnson publishing building in Chicago was put into storage after that building was sold to Columbia college, Chicago uh, in about 2010. And because of his health, concerns um, and other issues, complicating factors, the storage locker in which a lot of this stuff was kept. um, I believe that the payment on the storage locker lapsed. So all of this material, all all of this incredible um, material out of Bennett's collection was just going to get thrown away.
1: Oh shit.
0: Um, And at the very last minute, I, I think it was one of the guys who was from the storage company who was like moving the stuff. And it was just, just going to get chucked, is my understanding. Um, he recognized Bennett's name. And then he was like, oh, I, you know, who, who should I call about this? So he called Chicago State um, and got in contact with Aisha, who was at Chicago State. And then um, they, the collection ended up going to Chicago State. Um, but, you know, that just soaked easily all of this material. And, you know, when, when I got there, it was, you're talking about like 120, 140, moving boxes of material so it's an you know it's an incredibly large collection um and that all of that material could so easily have just have just been thrown away and it's just obviously it's it's very fortunate that it was recovered and 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 by Chicago State and it's extremely fortunate for me that I happened to be in Chicago at the exact moment that this was happening and then I could kind of get my eyes on them on this material but know these type of stories just happen all the time when we talk about african-american history and and black diasporic history and it's you know it's not a coincidence that these type of stories keep happening you know you you you, there's so many of these fascinating characters and institutions and then you think oh i'd love to find out more about these what are the archival collections and they just don't exist um, because they've been disregarded or they haven't been valued Um, and you know that speaks to the ways in which Archives value material. It speaks to the way in, in which our society values material. It speaks to the ways in which you know whose histories get to be told and whose histories don't, um, and that's incredibly sad. But but you know, in this particular instance, it was it was fortunate that, that this huge collection of, of Bennett's material was um, ultimately um, able to be to be saved. And, and Chicago State has just recently finished processing um, that material, and I, I believe now it's accessible to the public.
1: Wow, and. 12 years later it's like you could you could you have written this book if if you could you have written this particular book had um had that storage space been you know pretty much just given away or whatever the next step would have been if that uh unknown name person or unnamed person didn't call chicago state up um i don't think so like not in the form that it is um I could have written, you know, a
0: book, and Bennett would have been a, a feature of that book, and it maybe would have asked slightly different questions. But um, yeah, like so much of that material was was so important to to this project, and and also um, like other projects that I've done, like I recently finished a biography of Bennett, and it was, you know, really central to to that project as well. Um, but yeah, as, as I say, you know, that, that's not a new um, or particularly unusual story in case of the fragility or precarity of so many of these these archives.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to know, as someone who has now written a full book that I have my left hand on and a proof uh, proof version of a uh, biography, um, what do you think made Lerone Bennett Jr. such a singular figure as a Black historian and writer? Yeah, it's... Uh...
0: It's kind of a difficult question in some ways, because I think Bennett is someone who resonates with a lot of people, but it's quite an intimate relationship with people and people, you know, he wrote on a diverse range of material and he wrote, you know, he wrote very eloquently and evocatively about different things. So, you know, some people, their point of perspective with with Bennett is is before the Mayflower, which uh, came out in the early 60s and you know, remains a, one of the, you know, landmark survey black history texts of the of the 20th century, um, probably up there with um, John Hope Franklin's From from Slavery to Freedom, um, in terms of copies sold, and, you know, the number of issues it went through and things like that. Um, some people come to Bennett through his work on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so he has, you know, this, this very controversial article in the late 60s about a, a Lincoln being a white supremacist, and that, that article a couple of decades Very later feeds into, controversial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that feeds into forced into glory which uh, he Bennett understands as his magnum opus which which comes out um, in 2000 um, or, or around 2000 um, and then other people you know come at him from from other perspectives you know he, he writes on all, all matter of different things um I think I think for Bennett his own understanding of the way that his position as a popular historian worked, um, was Bennett was able to strategically utilize his position at Ebony um, and at Johnson Publishing, you know, the the largest black publishing enterprise in, in, the, company, in the country and arguably the world. Um, and that provided him with an enormous platform and a reach. And he was able to strategically utilize that um, to disseminate his ideas about black history. Um And also, I think Bennett was very intentional in how he wrote. So I think that Bennett, and this is maybe something that separates him from some of the black public intellectuals that we maybe think about who emerged during potentially the 1990s or, or the 2000s. I think Bennett, you know, Bennett's core audience and his imagined audience and his desired audience was black people. And I don't think that he was that concerned with being, you know, the, the Adolf Reed interpretation of the black public intellectual, where you're almost a cipher or like a translator of black culture for, for white people. Like Bennett didn't really care about that. You know, he cared about writing for black people and that was the audience that he was looking for. Um, And I think that resonated with a lot of that audience because the way that he wrote history wasn't beholden to certain, you know, he, he talked a lot about trying to write outside the conceptual envelope of white history. And you know, we can give specific examples of, of what he meant by that. But I think that overarching idea of of trying to write history from a black perspective um, for Bennett was a guiding principle. And I think that's something that resonated with a tremendous number of readers. Um, and you know, resonated in different ways, but I think that was, you know, the basis of his appeal.
1: And and it's it's interesting. I don't I don't think that you did this on purpose. But it was very interesting when you just said, from a Black perspective, and who, you know, the African American Intellectual History Society's uh, uh, main uh, arm is their blog called Black Perspectives. And I should say ours, since I am on the executive board, uh, for, for for those who may not know. Um, so it's just very interesting also, because I think what you just said, um, it was an interesting sleight of hand. But it was like, what does it mean to have a blog? You know, and this, you know, not gonna get all the way into it on the public airways per se, but um as a as an appetizer is more so just made me think recently about what does it mean in terms of having a blog for an arm of an organization that name is Black Perspectives, and as you just talked about, Bennett's main focus in terms of uh, the, the, the group that he was writing for are black folks, right? So he's writing from um, his interpretation of a black perspective. Um, so, so that, that's just been, um, I know that that's been something that um, folks have thought about and talked about at times about um, AIHS's space. Um, but what you just said made it, brought it to my attention for this particular book. So uh for those who are listening, you know, hit my DMs if you have questions. But uh, yeah, that, that's definitely been something that I've thought about too. Um, but but yeah, sorry. I, that was just a, a, a riff that, that I just had, my friend.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I think that um, the first thing that I wrote for Black Perspectives and was a, a, a bit tree of, of Bennett. Um, oh really? Yeah, in uh, okay, yeah. twenty eighteen, and that was I think I, I wrote that, um, and uh, and then I kind of became a more semi regular um, mm-hmm. contributor to Black Perspectives. But yeah, it's it's kind of it ties back again. You know, Benny was the entry point for a uh, for writing for Black Perspectives, and I I think yeah, I think that's something that I've become more and more. Like I think I've thought about that more and more as I've worked through the product like this book, and then also. the the biography of Bennett that I've been working on more recently Um, and yeah what exactly because you know that kind of thing sounds quite nice if it's like all black people like Bennett wrote for black people from a black perspective but in some ways that's quite essentialist so what exactly did that mean like what did that mean for Bennett specifically Um, and that's been something that I've I've been thinking a lot about Um, yeah particularly over the last couple of years for sure
1: yeah, and would you describe yourself as a historian of black intellectual history? Just as I just a, a a thought that I just had. Um like I think I think I probably would. Um but it's again
0: it's just i just gonna not to get too all up in my feelings on on the podcast but hey, I hey, think look, it's just look, come on, yeah. Man. Like you you just if you're a white scholar of the experience of Kind of a minoritized group of people or a disenfranchised group of people, and in this case, the specific example we're talking about is black history or, or African American history. There is always like you can't avoid there being a kind of extractive component to the work that you do. Um, and I think for a lot of white scholars, that extractive element is the thing that they're probably more interested in than necessarily kind of you know, a lot of white scholars I think are more interested in. T- Than the liberation of black people. So, uh, you know, that, I I don't think it's possible to get away from like some element of that work being extractive from the position of writing as a white scholar. And I think that that doesn't negate the potential value of the work that I might bring to this field as a white scholar, but it's something that you are just constantly having to grapple with and be mindful of and just be thinking, you know, who is this work benefiting? Because um, if this work is benefiting me in a predominantly white academic environment, then that's not really a reason to be doing this work. So, yeah, I think I would, I you know, I, I would say that I'm a historian of, of Black intellectual history, but that's also something that I would kind of struggle with a little bit and, and be thinking about, you know, what gives me the right or the confidence to kind of ascribe that label to myself, and you know. Um. So yeah, I it's, it's just yeah, it's always something that's coming. Kind of, yeah, yeah sort of no, from my mind. I think.
1: No, yeah, no, and and it's something that um part of the reason why I ask is because I know that there have been um instances on Twitter where there have been conversations about Black Studies, um and I think you've even published some stuff in um some pieces in um the Black Scholar, um if I'm not mistaken, and so it's just you know a question that um you know. I was very interested in, especially with um, the kind of work that um, your your book here is doing and also how folks like Dag Bovi uh, also describe it. So I'm just interested in what you actually think as the writer of, uh, of the story here. Um, and speaking of kind of writers of stories and crafters of stories, uh, Johnson Publishing, we can't talk about Lauren Bennett Jr. without also talking about um, Johnson Publishing. And so, Can you discuss the and and really describe the role Johnson Publishing had in helping build Lerone Bennett's uh, public profile?
0: Yeah, sure. So Johnson Publishing starts, it's it's first called Negro Digest Publishing and then changes its name. Um, So his first publication is Negro Digest in 1942. Um, Then Ebony starts in 1945 and Ebony really changes the game uh, because Ebony is the first, black consumer magazine, photo editorial magazine, to have sustained success. Um, it's the first black publication to really cross the color line in terms of advertising revenues. Um, and that enables publisher John Hayes Johnson to to build this really quite spectacular roster of, of black literary talent in Chicago um, during, during the late 40s into, into the 50s. Uh, so Bennett joins the company in 1953 and he writes first for jet magazine which is a uh sister publication of ebony it's, it's quite a, it was quite a small magazine um kind of news news magazine more than ebony and um then after about a year he moves to to ebony and he joins the company at a really interesting moment in the company's history so for people who aren't familiar um the early history of, of Johnson publishing, um, the, the editorial control was mainly a guy called Ben Burns, who was a white Jewish editor who, you know, was a like lapsed Communist Party member, and then he allianced with Johnson and they built this quite successful partnership um, in the 40s and early 50s. But the the magazine's content in this period, I guess you might describe it as, as cheesecake or very light touch. Um there was, you know, lots of um semi-nude models, lots of stories on interracial passing. Um, it, was, it was quite titillating. Um, they were going for a certain type of audience. And then into the 50s, that begins to change in, in large part because readers are demanding more coverage of the civil rights movement, which is kind of emerging as a national force. And then, you know, people are more interested in stories about black history, about more, you know, quote-unquote serious aspects of, of black life. So Bennett joins at this moment where Johnson publishing as a company and Ebony in particular, is, it, the identity is kind of shifting and Ben Burns, the, the white editor is removed um, around the time that uh, Bennett joins the company. Um, so Johnson, the publisher is kind of looking for people to take the magazine forward in, in new ways. Um, And he ultimately decides that Bennett is the person to author this pioneering black history series that appears in Ebony um, during the early 60s. And then the success of that series gets translated into Before the Mayflower, uh, which is Bennett's first book length work. And, And that's really a book length version of the black history series that he does for Ebony. And that really gives him the platform. Because um, prior to this, you know, Bennett is relatively well known. He's come from the Atlanta Daily World. He's he's a quite talented journalist. He's, he's like respected within the black press as a talented journalist, but he's not seen as a historian, really. Like people don't recognise him to be a historian. Um, whereas before the Mayflower, the success of that just goes far beyond what Bennett or Johnson could possibly have imagined. And that really positions him suddenly and quite dramatically as this new authority on black history, um, who has this enormous audience through Ebony magazine. Um, So it's a quite rapid emergence for Bennett, um, at least in being seen as a historian.
1: And so with that context, can you then describe the tensions that at different times um, develop between the public persona of Ebony as this black consumer magazine, and the conflicts it creates at times for a more militant figure and not even more militant, depending on the time, very militant uh, figure, really all militant at the time um, of a figure like Bennett Jr. Um, Because I I think that's a central um, of the many central themes of your book. That is one of the ones that I, I realized very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, I think
0: Bennett is part of a, a more, left-wing block within Johnson Publishing, um, particularly during the 1960s. So a few other people, you know, Jonathan Fenderson has written a really fantastic book about Hoyt Fuller um, building the Black Arts Movement. So Hoyt Fuller, who was, he was at Johnson Publishing and then in the 50s and then he left because he was alienated by the editorial politics. And then Johnson convinces him to come back uh, to edit Negro Digest, which was revived in the early 60s with Hoyt Fuller as the editor. Hoyt Fuller is is one part of that left wing block. Someone like David Lawrence, who joins a little bit later in the '60s and has very strong links to Southern activism and um, groups like SNCC, um, he's another part of that block. And the, a lot of these guys have a lot of problems with the way that Johnson runs the company. In particular, his deference to corporate advertisers, um, you know, his reluctance to publish, you know, more militant content. Um, or more critically engaged content, more sympathetic profiles of emerging uh, black leaders, such as Stokely Carmichael, Kami uh, um, people like Eldridge Cleaver, you know, those kind of characters. And this is Bennett, for Bennett, this is something that he grapples with a lot throughout his entire time at Johnson Publishing. And he's obviously able to reconcile it to some extent because he never really leaves Johnson Publishing from... You know, the early '50s through to when he retires, um, in the early 21st century. But you see it in his papers. You see it in his correspondence with other people. Like he, he really struggles with how to do the most good in his role because he he understands that he has this incredible platform, and he can use that to disseminate his ideas about Black history to the largest possible group of people. Um, but all, he also understands that his reputation offers Johnson something of a shield um, you know it it kind of helps um, it helps Johnson get away from some of the more public critiques of his enterprise and of Ebony magazine in particular Um, and yeah for for Bennett the way that he rationalizes which is a way that I think is quite interesting because he's quite critical of the magazine's consumerist orientation but also he uses that lens to understand his own position within the company and he describes himself as a franchise. So yeah, he sees himself as a franchise within Johnson Publishing. Um, so he almost separates the specific work that he does from the broader remit or politics of Johnson Publishing or of Ebony Magazine. And I think that's the way that he you know, reconciles himself to his specific role.
1: In speaking of specific roles, one of the aspects that is obviously very important, and this goes back to um, Dag Bovi saying that, this, uh, that Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr. is a major contribution to our understanding of what West aptly calls popular Black history. And so with that popular Black history framing, can you then speak about how the historical establishment at large, especially in the 60s and 70s, and moving forward and towards the end of the century, how did the historical establishment engage um, Bennett Jr. as a popular historian, right? Because sometimes when you think of popular historian, PhD, especially in this time where the institutionalization and the growing number of Black PhDs in history or and uh, the early Black study spaces are growing, how did folks especially the white ones um engage um Leone Bennett Jr as a popular historian. Yeah, that's a great
0: question. I th- I think it's probably easiest if we distinguish between I guess you know the white academy or, or white professional historians who are broadly critical, like broadly they have negative opinions about Bennett um and you see that in framings of his work which are either quite dismissive or they say oh he doesn't really understand the theory of history um you know his 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 simplistic takes you know he, he writes like a journalist you see all these quite subtle criticisms and then less subtle criticisms um at certain points particularly after his work on abraham lincoln comes out um for black historians and particularly black historians within the academy i think the the relationship is more complex um and i think a good example is someone like john hope franklin who is again within the chicago environment in which Bennett is, is moving. And they have, you know, a pretty good personal relationship from the best that I can understand from, from Bennett's papers and and talking with members of his family and and colleagues and things like that. So Franklin and and Bennett, you know, they, they appear at conferences together. They appear on radio shows together. um, They have a, you know, a a clear respect for one another. Um, But I also think that there is a little bit of tension there because, John Hope Franklin, and you know, some people might disagree disagree with my take on this, but I would see John Hope Franklin as someone who primarily understands his role in the academy to be that of a Southern historian, um, and certainly that's the way that he approaches his role at the University of Chicago. Um, that's my understanding of of Franklin's work. Whereas Bennett is someone who, you know, his approach to history comes through through a different lens and a different perspective. Um that's not to say that they obviously share, you know, the similarities of experience in, in some ways. But um yeah, I th- the, the biggest allies that Bennett has within the academy are black historians who are either more closely associated with this emerging group of um, you know, some people describe them as black ho- black power historians during the late 60s, early 70s. So people like Vincent Harding, Vincent Harding absolutely adores Lauren Bennett and they have a really you know great relationship and they connect through things such as the Institute of the Black World in Atlanta. Um, and then also scholars who you know are really pioneers in the emergence of Africana studies or African American studies. you know people like John hope Franklin um, are broadly very supportive of, of Bennett's work um, but yeah it, it's it's an interesting mix. Um, And I think you can probably see that in the tensions that emerge around black studies as a discipline as well during this period, Um, because broadly speaking, you see scholars separating into camps of seeing black studies as a more radical discipline. And then the idea of academic black studies, which is more or less integrate black perspectives into the existing framework of the academy. Um, And Bennett, you know, is very much more arguing for a, a more radical interpretation of black studies, I think. Um, and that, yeah, that shapes his relationship with, with, uh, black historians during that period in, in other ways.
1: And you talked about the Institute of the Black World and, you know, shout out to Derek White for his great book that, um, you know, I'm really excited to, to dig into. Um, so can you actually discuss a, a little more about, um, Bennett Jr.'s relationship to black studies? Along with his connection to the Institute of the Black World, because it brings that part of the book really brings out so many different figures. I was like, "Damn, I, I ain't, I ain't realize all of this." Yeah, I think yeah, Derek White's book is is
0: fantastic, The Challenge of Blackness, and he actually takes the title of that book from a speech that Bennett gives for the Institute of the Black World, which Vincent Harding later describes as you know kind of an encapsulation of the the core principles of the institute um so yeah so Bennett is involved with the Institute of the Black World his his entry into I guess a more academic role if you like is he's invited to Northwestern University in the late 1960s um as a visiting professor so the faculty at Northwestern this is in the aftermath of uh student protests and occupations at Northwestern um and Northwestern's administration is kind of scrambling, and they're they're looking for people who they can invite to kind of address some of these student concerns. And, and Bennett emerges as a consensus candidate. Um, so he he comes to Northwestern for a year, um, and he teaches, and you know the students love him. It is it goes very well, um, and then a couple of years later, he's actually appointed to be the founding chair of Northwestern's African American Studies Department in the early '70s. Um, And he doesn't it doesn't last. That relationship doesn't last very long and it it doesn't end particularly well. But um, I think, you know, it's important to understand that connection for Bennett within this broader milieu of, you know, black journalists or black activists or or black popular historians, if you like, being invited into more formal positions within the academy. Um, So you see people like uh, Don Lee, um, who's subsequently known as as Haki Madabuti. Um, He is invited to, I believe, Cornell. He becomes a faculty at Cornell. You see people like Cleveland Sellers. Um, So, you know, you have this group of quite activist-oriented scholars, artists who become faculty um, at different institutions, and and often it's at predominantly white institutions. Um, And then this creates tensions because often these people have a quite specific understanding of what Black Studies is and who Black Studies is for. And that doesn't necessarily align with the predominantly white administrations at places like Northwestern or Cornell or Columbia. Um, So yeah, it's uh, kind of another space in which Bennett's
1: position as a historian is is challenged or critiqued or discussed. And the Institute of the Black World is to me one of my favourite... Like, and I'll say favorite because I'm like I said I'm looking forward to reading um, Derek White's book. I definitely got it downloaded, and excited to to get it. And I need to buy the in uh, the physical copy too, um, because when we think about institutes and especially now um, in the in the world in which. The deaths and the murders of folks in, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, called the role, um, opened up institutional space across the academy and across corporate America and across the world, actually, really. Um, It makes you think about the relationship between Black death and, you know, institutionalization, shall we say. Um, And so it just made me think more about, you know, how you describe the Institute of the Black World's creation, its connection to Black studies, especially in this, like, really, really, really early period. And so um, it also connects to my next question in terms of periodization and also provenance, because Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr. makes an intriguing argument about the provenance of the term Black power. Can you discuss the, uh? uh can you discuss Lerone Bennett Jr.'s connection to black power and his connection to Kwame Ture, most known as the progenitor of the term black power? That part was like, okay, I ain't know that either. <laughs> yeah, sure. So,
0: yeah, I think I'm, you know, in, in this book, I'm not in any way making the case that Bennett, you know, invents the term black power or anything like that, Um, you know. Ronda Williams and other scholars have done a fantastic job of showing the the prehistories of that term well prior to the 60s but Bennett um it is it's really interesting about i think it's 6 months or so prior to the Meredith march uh which is when uh, quite Victoria mean, then then Stokely carmichael really you know he has this this famous a speech and it's the first time that this term black power is picked up by national media outlets and that kind of launches the the idea of black power onto the national stage. You know, six months or so prior to this, Bennett had started a historical series in Ebony called Black Power. Um, and it was about reconstruction and it was about black political power during reconstruction. Um, and then that series continues and kind of runs alongside this emerging parallel dialogue around Black Power in the 1960s so Bennett's series, I I think it's really interesting to read Bennett's series on Black Power in Ebony alongside the emergence of Black Power um, during the months following the Meredith March Um, and it's also interesting to me how mainstream media outlets basically ignore Bennett's series um, because what that series does is it really complicates the way that mainstream media are trying to frame black power they're trying to frame it as a short-termist reactionary you know angry ill thought out response Um, black power in the 60s as a short-term manifestation of black rage but Bennett's framing of that idea of black power is very clearly rooted in the reconstruction period Um, and it gives a much long-term or a more long-term framing of the idea of black power in a way that definitely complicates those media narratives um, and the way that mainstream media outlets tried to frame Black Power in, you know, 66, 67. Um, so, yeah, you know, it is, it is an interesting series. And then that, that turns into a book called Black Power USA, which is about Black Power in, in Reconstruction. Um, and Bennett and Kwame Tore have a quite interesting relationship. You know, Bennett pens one of the early in-depth profiles of, of Tore in the aftermath of the Meredith March. Um and again, you know, his understanding of Tore's relationship to black power is very much rooted in, rooted in black political power. And that's something that comes through in you know the Torrey and Hamilton's book on black power. And then you know in subsequent years um Tore moves beyond that more politically specific framing of Black Power. But yeah, I think at this moment in 66, 67, uh, it is really interesting to see the way that Bennett is engaging with the idea of black power and the way he, he's so clearly trying to frame it historically um, as almost a, a, re- a response to these short-termist framings from, from mainstream media.
1: And so as we move towards the, the final part of our interview, I'm really interested to know because... You know, once again, going back to the framing of, of of popular historians, and 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 not even just popular historians. Put that to the side for a moment. Journalists that write history, I think, is a more important framing for for today, um, especially because you have uh, prominent journalists who write and in, and incorporate historical scholarship, like Nicole Hannah Jones, previously mentioned, 1619 Project, Jamal Bowie. Um, you know who who was uh developed through slate and other spaces um and actually had his own um uh, american slavery series with uh another uh you know a, a white uh woman scholar uh, rebecca onion or a journalist who i think actually got a phd if i'm not mistaken um and so you know ger- ger- once again people who describe themselves i believe as journalists who are writing history and so maybe onion to the side but what similarities and differences do you find between Ben and Junior? And I described it at first as popular stories, but we'll reverse it to actually say journalists. Uh, because I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just interested to know what you see um, in, in the archival bits that you've gone through over the course of your career.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's funny you mentioned uh, Rebecca Onion. She's just she's editing something for Slate at the moment for me. It's
1: like, oh, oh shit. Every, okay, okay. Hey, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. trying
0: to step on no toes, bro. I ain't trying no, to step on all toes, bro. Every, everything's already connected. Um, Yeah, no, that was just funny. Um I think yeah. I think for me, Bennett is part of this really strong tradition of black journalists and, uh, and writing about history and, and that connection between black history and black journalism. And you, you stretch that all the way back to people like, you know, George Washington Williams in, in the late 19th century. I mean, uh, his, his work on, is often seen as one of the first survey studies of, of black history. Um, John Hope Franklin describes Washington's work as the you know, the beginning of the first wave of, of, of black history, if you like. Um, but he's also someone who is an extremely influential journalist you know he does incredible investigative work in the belgian congo um you know people like dubois is as in many ways as as much a journalist as he is a sociologist or historian through his work with the crisis you know carter g woodson loves writing for the black press um and you know there's been some really great work on how carter g woodson as a journalist that how that work complemented his work as a historian. Um, so Bernice Morris is uh, someone who who's written a really great book about Kies, Carter G. Woodson and, and the Black Press recently. Um, so I see Bennett as very much being part of that tradition, like Joel Augustus Rogers is, is someone else in the Pittsburgh Courier. And, you know, the people that I've mentioned there, It you get a sense of how this framing is gendered. Um, and I think that is something that is... An important consideration for Bennett, and it's definitely something that informs his work, um, because I do think the way it's to an extent, I think it's changing in the present, um, in the 21st century. But certainly during this period, I think who gets to be a popular historian or, or who or who gets to write in this way for for a popular audience, um, I think it is quite a gendered project, um, and that certainly limits the way that Bennett thinks about you know the connections between Black history, Black liberation. Um, and that is part of the milieu in which he's writing. Johnson publishing, in many ways, is, is a quite you know gendered project. Um, it comes from his background. You know, he went to Morehouse College in Atlanta um, under the leadership of Benjamin Mays, um, where he's given a model of you know the Morehouse man. You know, a quite androcentric androcentric vision of of black excellence, um, and you know, I guess in that feeds back to this question of, of pop, who's a popular historian or, or client journalist who gets to write about history. Um, and it also feeds back into ideas about, you know, respectability and, and race men. And I think Bennett, you can probably situate him within that lineage of, of race men, although it, that's a term that he doesn't necessarily identify with himself. Um So yeah, I, I definitely see him as being part of that project. And then as you've already mentioned, it is interesting to see how scholars today, um, particularly scholars who, or journalists who write for a public audience, um, you do see the influence of, of Bennett's writing um, on these type of projects. You know, the 1619 project, I think the very first footnote in the book version of the 1619 project is actually Bennett, um, which gives you a sense of that, that influence or the the legacy of, of his writing. Um, And, because so much of that that writing comes through ebony you know one of the things i was trying to do with this book is really think about the question you know what what does it look like if we take ebony seriously as a history text like because the you know the readers are saying that they are valuing it in that way you know it's being interpreted in that way so what does that mean if we you know take ebony seriously um as a source of of history as, as a, as a part of, you know, what Vincent Harding describes as the modern black history revival. Um, and he did, he talks about Ebony as being a key driver as an engine for that revival. Um, so I think a lot of the book is really about addressing that question and it's doing it in different ways. And obviously Bennett is a central part of that, um, but he's, he's not the only part of it for sure.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that um, in terms of the comparison um, between uh, Bennett Jr. and, you know, Bowie and, and Jones, uh, Hannah Jones and others is also just he uh, Bennett Jr. is writing within black institutional space and they're not. And and that's no slight at them. But I think it also makes me think, too, is Bennett, can you can you consider now, especially with um, the role of the black press now, would you say that he's like the last or, or one of the last more, would you say he's one of the more, uh, one of the last more well-known black, not only, not black journalists, but a black journalist who is writing in black institutional space. And, and yeah. And,
0: yeah. yeah, that's a brilliant point. And I think it is so important. Um, and I think Bennett, you know, Bennett towards the end of his career I can't remember he was receiving an award or something and he you know he was just saying I'm so you know I've never got a check from a white guy and that matters like it's you know for him that was such a point of pride like he took he always said you know I I write for the black press not because I have to but because I I chose to and I think I, I don't I don't know if he's necessarily the last person but i think there is something to be said about and the ways in which um black scholars black artists black intellectuals moved into white spaces particularly post 1960s and the ways in which that maybe affected the type of audiences that they're able to reach or the kind of their core constituency in terms of who they're writing for um and I don't I don't necessarily think that's a you know exclusively negative phenomenon it's a very complex thing but I think there is a lot to be said for the power of black spaces and the power of black institutions in in providing people like Bennett with the space to write in the way that he is able to write and you know I think with Johnson publishing specifically the past decade we've seen the dissolution of Johnson publishing effectively as an institution Um, And I think there are interesting spaces, uh, particularly online, for black journalism. Um, But a lot of those spaces aren't necessarily black-controlled or they're subsidiary spaces. So places like The Root or um, maybe the (laughs) the The Athletic or... You know, things like that. I mean, there was a big kerfuffle a couple of years ago because Essence was briefly sold to a, I can't remember the specific company, but it was like a, a white-owned company. And I, now I believe Essence is back under black control. But, you know, those cars, they, those things do matter, I think. Um, and I think Bennett understood that very, very well. And I think also Johnson, you know, you can criticize Johnson, John Hayes Johnson, the publisher of, of Ebony, for all manner of things. But I think that's something that he understood very well you know the the power that that has you know the, the power of owning black institutions and then having spaces within black institutions to right um and
1: yeah it's
0: it's yeah it's a it's difficult one to answer yeah, yeah.
1: but uh, yeah and, and and actually for, for those listeners who's probably like, what the fu- what the hell the, the the last hey hey let me let me let me let me back up real quick not the last you know, not the last, but but I think that there was something singular about that moment and also um, about Bennett Jr. So not to say he's the last, but um, he definitely is, um, a I think, a singular figure because of the fact that going back to the consumerism aspect, although the tensions were there, some may say that the consumerism aspect that helped to develop the readership is directly in hand, hand in hand with it. So the consumerism and the more black militant, um, historiography that he's, that John, uh, that not Johnson, but Ben and junior is writing in, they, they work together hand in hand as opposed to being, you know, separate entities in the same building. Um, you know, and, and it just makes me think, so you have, um, you know, a lot of, and you, you, I think for me, just trying to think about when I was a kid, grown up in the in the late '90s and and throughout the 2000s, every spring on C-SPAN, they would have the um was it the Covenant with Black America discussions that that were always every spring, and they that is an archive in and of itself because I think that th- is and that's where I saw Bennett Junior. just talking, um and I think he was actually in virginia when they hosted the the like it was um um is maybe 2007 it was something to do with jamestown maybe um and so and and it was kind of like a precursor to 1619 um and i think those are important moments because you don't see this now we ain't even talking about covid when you have folks like uh julian malvo michael eric dyson cornel west uh, Lewis Fer- you know uh, Farrakhan, you know, and 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 you know all these people under the same on the same panels. James Cone, you know, uh, 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 Dorothy Height, like like all of these black luminaries and intellectuals, all in the same space. And so it just you know I, I didn't realize as a kid, because, you know I'm a kid, I don't know everything that's going on. But it's just you know I'm not like a someone who was always like, man, I wish I could go back. I'm good. I I like it here. Um, It's just one where, you know, you just kind of wish that you can have so many different views within black America, within, you know, black institutional spaces, all coming under one roof. Um, And and it's just, it's sad, you know, at least for me, Um, it's a sad reality. Um, But, you know, the the more days that we live, the more opportunities we have to 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 build for the, for the future, and so, um, gotta do what you gotta do. So, man, I appreciate you. And and one of the last questions I got for you, flipping the script and talking about excitement, what excites you most about the work you do as a writer and a professor?
0: Yeah, um, I think I I like stories. I like telling stories. I like interesting characters. I like you know, thinking about how people work and interact within certain spaces or certain institutions. So I think it's not a coincidence that so much of the work that I have done in this book and in other books organises around Johnson publishing. Uh just because I feel it's such a interesting microclimate. Um of like you say you have these different perspectives, you have different characters, you have different um, you know, ideology ideologies or strategies. And I just I'm really attracted to those type of networks and, and milieus um and the kind of characters and stories that emerge out of those spaces so i think that's definitely um the thing that that excites me the most and uh this, yeah that's probably there's there's plenty of other spaces that you, you could look to for for those type of um connections but the the one for me that just turned out to be the one that i was really interested in was uh was johnson publishing um so yeah so i'm I'm still I'm still just I'm still just writing about Johnson Publishing, I think.
1: Hey man, look, there there's a lot of reason to do so. There is a lot of reason to do so And, um you know I, I just think about for me one of the first um I think it was, I think what is it? it was it was Ebony, um when I was a kid. <clears throat> Excuse me, when I was a kid, I remember actually um going to the Palm Beach County um public library. And my cousin wanting to look at Ebony and literally going through the reels. Um, I was probably I don't know it was in the summertime, so I was probably like eleven or twelve, and just kind of thinking about just like how cool. Damn, this is kind of cool. Not knowing that, you know, five six years later I would be getting a, a undergraduate degree in history, and then here we are, almost a hundred episodes of new books in African-American studies in, and we're doing more. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, and, and this in and this last question, I'm really um, interested to know what your thoughts are uh, before we close up shop. So as, you know, folks who, who listen to the channel often know, I love asking my favorite historians and writers about their own workspace. And so for those who can't see, none of, y- none of y'all can see, only, only I can. Beautiful space. You know, got a nice window right there coming in, different work desks, Very beautiful. And so if money wasn't a thing, you got all the money, you know, just go to Ikea, get what you want. Big old spending spree. Unlimited. Unlimited. If you had all the money you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, where would it be? What would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? And what is playing in in the background? Paint the picture for the people
0: oh man i love this question but i'm also very concerned that my answer is going to make me seem like a bit of a sociopath um (laughs) because i'm someone who like doesn't like i basically have to work in absolute silence um to the extent that even sometimes i'll wear ear defenders because the tapping of the keyboard is really annoying me so it's got to like a super it's got to like a really extreme level so there will be nothing happening in terms of sounds i'm afraid um in terms of what it looks like. Um, I I think about like my favorite spaces generally are botanical gardens or conservatories or that type of thing. Like if, if you name, if you asked me to name like one of my favorite places, um, I would probably say Garfield park conservatory in Chicago. Like that would be probably be one of the top places that I would say, um, just in terms of, of an environment. So there would have to be a lot of greenery, a lot of plants, um, and then, yeah, I, it's a bit limited in the UK because you, you may or may not have heard, but the UK weather is pretty horrendous. So um, I'm <laughs> yeah, not sure about yeah, what yeah. this what this space is going to work like in the UK. But um, yeah, artwork. I mean, I don't know about specific artwork. Um, I have quite a lot of maps. I quite like maps. Um, so I think maybe there would be there would be maps around. Um, but yeah, I just I. I don't know. I I, know, I appreciate people are different with this and I know lots of people really like the energy of working in a cafe or you know that type of thing. I was gonna I mean, say like, that's
1: a hell no for you if you say that. That,
0: I, that just sounds like so incredibly stressful to me so <laughs> I just I can't deal with that at <laughs> all. Um, so yeah I you know more power to the people who, who, who kind of get that energy from those type of environments but for me yeah, it has yeah. to be uh, I think quite a a regulated space probably um but yeah i I love that question
1: no look we were talking about uh Lerone bennett jr as a singular figure you are one of one i don't think i've ever had anyone in the history of me asking this question formally on the interview or in general just like informally to say complete silence like i've never (laughs) <laughs> Never, ever, ever. So you are you are a one-of-one, one, James West, author of Ebony Magazine and Lerone Bennett Jr., Popular Black History in Post-War America. It has been a pleasure seeing you, my friend. Um, you know, I feel like I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing seeing you uh, maybe in Montgomery um, in the fall for Asala. Let's hope and pray, please, Jesus, <laughs> because I want to be back near my people my Asala people you know we're doing AI chess this weekend and so um, definitely looking forward to um, you know our, our amazing other organization uh, Asala and so man it has been a pleasure to, to see you once again and to talk about talk to you rather about this amazing book and y'all please support University of Illinois press and buy this amazing book and, and support our authors. And so if you if you like this interview, if you're laughing, if you're enjoying this last hour, look y'all. now all my interviews are two and a half hours. And so please enjoy uh, this interview and, and if you did, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast and that's new books in African American Studies a podcast channel because I know Marshall is listening on the new Books Network. And until next time, I'm your host Adam McNeil. As I always say, over and out.